Join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for today. Um, We thank you for this season. We thank you for an opportunity to gather together as your people and reflect upon you. Reflect upon you coming to us. A gift we did not deserve, something you did not have to do. And yet something you did because of your grace, because of your love. I pray that as we enter into this series, as we enter into this season where we once again reflect upon your coming to us, that we wouldn't lose sight of the beauty of that gift. I pray that it would infuse our hearts with worship as we reflect upon your coming and what it meant for us. Lord, and for those who don't know you, I pray that it would draw us to repentance, that we would see our need for what you did for us. So we think for this time where we can reflect, where we can worship, and where we can refocus our eyes on you. I pray that your spirit would lead. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's Christmas. It's decorated up here. I don't know about you guys, but... um, when Chris preached last week, I didn't hear a word that he said because of this. Like, it's so shiny. It's so distracted. This is why they don't let me up here during Christmas. Usually, this stuff is all gone, so I don't get distracted. But it's actually nice for somebody who roams around the stage. It's like a clear indicator that I'm about to fall off. So, it's pretty nice. Um, you may see at some point an exodus of roughly 10 or 12 men that just decide to get up in the middle of this message and leave. I've been challenged by the guys in my my men's small group to preach a Christmas message that has stuff in it that they've never heard before. Now, consider the fact that Jeremy Slade, who isn't here today, I imagine he's going to watch us at some point, he's seen 89 Christmases. like shooting fish in a barrel. Um, So I have to find something that is original to this man who has, he's heard things from the donkey's perspective. He's heard things from the wise men, the kings, the angel, the star, the hay. He's heard it all. He's heard all the perspectives. And uh, so I don't think I'm going to say anything that's new to us today, but again, hopefully something that um, refocuses our hearts as we come into this Christmas season. Because we'll hear things throughout the course of these next few weeks about uh, Jesus being the reason for the season, <clears throat> Jesus being the, the ultimate gift. And we'll say things like that, but sometimes I think because of the familiarity of this season, we actually lose the heart behind what that actually means for us. And we can quickly kind of just minimize the importance and just celebrate the trappings and really lose the heart behind what we're doing here. Again, admittingly so, we're going to talk for the next few weeks about Jesus coming in the form of a baby. And I mean, even our our greatest or least greatest Christmas gifts that we have ever received, we don't talk about them every year, but uh, a gift this great is worthy of our talking about year after year after year after year. Amen? Now, there are two types of Christmas gifts that we never forget. We have those that are so bad 
that we're just never going to forget about them. Again, we don't talk about them every year, but we do, we do bring them up, don't we? Normally, this is the stuff that was knit by Graham Graham. Uh, it may be husbands, it may be the piece of exercise equipment that you purchased that you thought your wife could use but didn't ask for, <laughs> just to give her a nudge in the right direction. Remember that gift catastrophe? <clears throat> Mine was, oh man, I, must, I, I think it was in college when I got this gift, which makes it all the weirder. I'm the youngest in my family, so I was like 18, 19 years old putting my brothers in their 20s, maybe even early 30s at this point. And we got one of those gifts, you know, when mom and dad give you like a joint gift that everyone has to open at the same time because it's the same thing and it's got to be equal surprise. Well, mom had one of these this year and she was stoked. I mean, like she was giddy talking about the week. I was like, oh, I can't wait for you to open your gift. And so all of us are thinking like, what could we all open, all in different stages of our lives, short of money, that's really going to like, that we're really going to love, right? I mean, I'm 19, I'm in college, pay for my semester, I don't need a gift, right? Can't fit it in my dorm room. And so uh, we, we get the big, the big three, two, one reveal, and we tear open this gift. I'm just going it, to, it was a polar bear rug. Not an actual polar bear rug. I'm pretty sure that's illegal. Matt, illegal polar bear rug? Yeah, I think so. And maybe you can help me with how exactly this worked because it, it would have been cool if it was like the size of a polar bear, like what you would get. Like, I'd put that in my dorm room. That's kind of cool, right? Like lay that down at the entrance. Welcome to my dorm room. I have a fake polar bear rug. That's cool. It wasn't that though. So imagine like a, a, a child's toy, like the Coca-Cola bear split down the middle, de-stuffed, and made into a rug. This thing wasn't even the size of a hand towel. You couldn't lay an infant child on it. I don't, I don't know what the part, but we all held it up. And my mom is sitting, my mom, we, we talk about like gifts, right? Like gifts that people have. She thinks hers is gift giving. Mom, I know you're watching this at home. I love you. You have other gifts. Uh, and so... This particular thing, and it was the same thing all at once. You know how you get the knitted sweater and you open it up and it's Graham Graham. And so everyone's like, oh, thanks, Grandma. This is so good. This is exactly what I wanted. A sweater that comes up to here on this side and goes down to here on the next. This is great. Thanks. We couldn't even hide it because of all of the buildup, all the anticipation. And it was like, this gift is going to be a, a polar bear hand towel. What is this? And she is dying on her recliner, laughing. She thought it was the greatest thing ever. And so apparently the gift to her was the gag. I don't really know. But still, to this year, to this year it is still one of those gifts where like every four or five Christmases, we'll be like all kind of gathering the gifts up and we'll just look at each other what that looked like. Yeah, but the polar bear rug? Like what? What was that, right? You have, you have those gifts that you can't forget because they're so awful. And then we have those gifts that we're never going to forget because they were so wonderful, right? We, most of them get turned into commercials, even though I'm not sure that this actually happens. Was anybody ever, uh, anybody in here get engaged on Christmas? That happened to anyone in here? It's a pretty big target audience. So every kiss doesn't begin with K. It, it can't only be Jared. Come on. Somebody? Who? Over there? Yeah! I love it. Way to go, you guys. You make the commercials. Look at that. I love it, right? 
So what an awesome Christmas gift, right? Dude's all nervous and like one down on one knee in the snow and opens the box. It could only be Jared. Wow, that was so bad. Strike that from the the online viewership. Um, no, so that would be like one of those gifts that we can't forget. Other than that, uh, we have the Lexus commercials. Anybody walk outside ever on Christmas and have a brand new Lexus with a bow on top? No, so that's not commonplace. No, I, I think mine was an 88 Toyota Camry sans bow, but it was still pretty cool. I was okay with it. But um, obviously, if that's ever happened to you, that would be pretty memorable. Mine was not Alexis. It was not Olivia asking me to marry her. Mine was, <clears throat> I would have said yes. Um, <clears throat> Mine was in the winter of 1997. That would have put me at nine years old. Sorry if that makes you feel old or if it makes you feel young. I don't really care. That's how old I was. Uh, and I remember the placement just to the right of the tree, a great big box. It was one of those, okay, everyone open it at once gifts. And it ended up being a Nintendo 64 with four controllers and GoldenEye 007. Now I realize to the vast majority of this, I see some of you shaking your head. Because you know the hours that you've spent. You know that you actually don't have a thumbprint anymore because of that game. We opened that gift and they had to literally send a search party for us. And by literally, I mean not actually. It's just something that you say. Uh, we were down in my parents' uh, parents' basement for the next three to four weeks. I don't even think we took bathroom breaks. Not even sure how that's humanly possible. But that's one of those gifts. I probably should have said something that you gave to me. Like... Didn't put it in the notes. <laughs> Gonna pay for that later. Um, it's, it's the N64. I'm sorry, babe. It's, it's Goldeneye. Like, oh, man. Best first-person shooter game ever. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so when we come to the gift of Jesus, when we say that Jesus is the ultimate gift... We can feel one of two ways about it, right? For those of us who have received Jesus, it makes sense. You know why, and you know that I'm not just handing you an infant wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. We're like, oh, this is cute, but like... I'd, I'd rather have my Lexus. I don't, I don't, I don't really know what to, what to do with this. But there are those of you who have embraced Christ. You understand that he didn't just come as a baby and then go away until next year. But we need to revisit that. We need to understand. We need to refresh our minds year after year after year after year. Because if we're going to say that he is the ultimate gift, if we're going to say that he truly is the, the reason for the season, then there's, there's some context that we need to gather. Because we needed him to come. We needed him to be here. The reason why Jesus is the ultimate gift is because he meets us in our utter poverty. He meets us in our utter poverty. And unless we understand that, unless we really wrap our minds around it, then it's always just going to be one of these things that we take out once a year with the poinsettias and then put away. And I don't want to do that. I know you don't want to do that. And so let's, let's really uncover why Jesus is the ultimate gift. It's because he meets us in our needs. And let's be honest, those great gifts that we received, I loved my N64 didn't need it. 
Probably could have used the book, to be honest. And most of you who know me the best say, yep, that is true. Probably could have used some more reading hours. Those of you who got your new Lexus, whoever you are, maybe you're too embarrassed to raise your hand, you could have used a, a used Taurus instead. You really didn't need the Lexus. Those of you who got engaged on Christmas, hopefully you're not sitting there thinking, you're right, I didn't need what I got for Christmas that year. <laughs> If so, where's Fritz Good? Fritz Good in here? Great counselor. Great counselor. No, just kidding. Um, but seriously, as we look at the things that we receive in this life, the greatest gifts that we never forget and always revisit, all of them pale in comparison to the gift of Jesus. Because underneath the Christmas tree or even out front on the driveway, we are never going to unwrap a gift that saves us. We're never going to unwrap a gift that transforms us, a gift that truly redefines us. And yet, in the gift of Jesus, when unwrapped and fully received, we find all of that and more. Thus making him truly the ultimate gift, the gift worthy of revisiting year after year after year after year. And yet, we need to revisit why. Why it matters. Even if you have heard the gospel Every 89 years. <laughs> Sorry, Jeremy Slate. Even if you have heard the beauty and the truth of this year after year after year, we need to set the context for the great need that we have to understand the true beauty of the gift that is Jesus. And I can think of no better way to go for us to do that than the book of Romans. And so we're going to be skipping around in Romans a lot today. So turn with me there, if you will. Uh, we're going to begin in chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 18 through 25 to help set the context of our great need. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to them, give thanks to him, rather, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So Paul is really trying to set the tone for our great need. Obviously, Romans is an incredible book where we uh, really see the full picture of why Christ came, why he died on the cross for us, why he became our Savior. And Paul, right off the bat, is trying to help every single reader in his audience, whether believer or somebody who uh, just so happens to be in the assembly that day and, and is not a follower of Jesus, wants to help them to see that we are all in the same boat. Because of our ungodliness, because of our unrighteousness, we stand in line in the crosshairs of God's wrath. 
This is the position that we all find ourselves in. And I know um, we can be tempted to look at Paul's words and be like, well, you know what, that's, that's not me. I know Paul is talking about a certain kind of person there, but that's, that's not really me. And if you're at that point, Paul continues to go on. And uh, chapter 3, if you want to skip over to there, chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, Paul again trying to hit home our unrighteousness at the core of who we all are. He says in verse 10, As it's written, none is righteous. No, not one. And again, there's nothing we can do to the Greek there. There's no, there's no context that I can give you to take any of you out of that uh, particular grouping. Paul is intentionally trying to draw all of our eyes to the reality that this is you. This is me. This is every single one of us. This is a problem, a deep need that we all have that needs to be dealt with. No one understands God. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now that is, those are, those are some pretty jarring words, right? And any of us can look at ourselves and take ourselves out of this category and say, hey, Paul, ease up, man. Like there are some days where I do some good. There are some days where maybe, maybe I do see I come to church a couple times a year, or, or maybe I, I come to church regularly. Like, you, you are putting me in a really not great shade of light. And so, you know, I, I don't think Paul's really talking about me here. I think I, think I do some good. I think in my own way, I, I do kind of seek God. I think, I think I do kind of buck the trend that Paul is trying to set here for every man. And if you are still in that camp, Paul once again kind of takes the, the whole of what he said in chapter 1 and the whole of what he says in chapter 3 and boils it down to its least common denominator a few verses later in Romans 3.23 where he says, For all have sinned, once again, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. can't really get out of that one, can we? That is a reality for each and every one of us. In some way, shape, or form, no matter how good we think we are or how good we think we can be or how worthy we are of God to look down at us and say, you know what? You're all right in my book. The reality is we have a perfect God, glorious, set completely apart from us. And Every single one of us at one point or another in our lives have made a decision that has taken us out of his perfect standard. Out of a, out of a means, we are, frankly, we are birthed into a reality that sets us apart from the absolutely other nature of who he is. And we have to deal with that problem. 
Because of that, we have great need. It's a problem that can't be fixed by church attendance, can't be fixed by our humanitarian efforts. It's a problem that can't be fixed by becoming our own definition of a good person because the problem is that our sin has left each and every one of us spiritually bankrupt. A condition that Paul says in Ephesians 2.1 lets us dead in our sin and trespasses. Again, our spiritual nature... That part of us that, that needs to be redeemed is dead because of our sin. And as a result, the solution to our spiritual poverty cannot be found in who we are or what we do. We cannot wash off our ungodliness. We cannot cover up our unrighteousness. We can't make up for the measure at which we have fallen short. Merry Christmas. Right? What a cheery Christmas message. Like, can we get back to the babe in the manger for a moment? I understand that this isn't the, the, the typical heartwarming message, and yet what a disservice it would be to look at the babe lying in the manger and not understand why he came. To not understand the poverty of our spiritual nature that he was walking into. In Jesus, we find provision for our poverty in spirit. This is why he came. It wasn't so that we could, we could decorate to the nines and, and have a, a, a big merry month where we just focus on things that, that warm our hearts and kind of insulate us from the cold. No, he came with a purpose. He came with a point in mind. Paul goes on to say in Romans 3, verses 23 through 25, if you keep on reading, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified, that word uh, meaning that we are made right, that we are declared not guilty of the charges against us. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, he, meaning that Jesus came forward as our as both our wrath taker and our reconciler to God. Here, I want to take the wrath that they are in the crosshairs of, and I want to make that relationship right. I want to take them from being your enemies, for being those who stand eternally against you in need of judgment, and I want to put them in right relationship with you once again, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. Romans 5 goes on to speak of the the provision that we have in Christ where Paul states in Romans 5 verses 1 through 2, skip on over there with me. Therefore, since we have been justified, again, Paul is not saying this is a given. He is speaking to the church. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to those who have placed their faith in the sufficient work of Christ on the cross. And Paul says, in light of this, since we have been justified, declared not guilty, made right before God by our faith, what do we have? Peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And yet, how is it possible 
that people as, as spiritually bankrupt as us, as Paul just describes in these, these first few chapters in Romans, how is it possible that simply by our faith we can be made right with God? I mean, we've really messed things up. If you really read those first three chapters, like there is, there is some, some real death going on inside of us. And so how can we be so sure that simply by putting our faith in Jesus that we're made right with God? I mean, really? Just, just, just simply believing in faith that, that He took our place? Believing in faith that His blood covers us? Believing in faith that His sacrifice is enough? for as much of a screw-up as I am and you are? Well, if you skip on down a little further in that chapter, Paul continues on in verse 6 of chapter 5. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But what does God do? He doesn't wait until we're perfect. He doesn't wait until we get it right, until we figure it out, until we worship Him as the, as the one true God, as we, as we rally together as a people and look up and say, we get it now. Great. Now I'll come. No. Paul says this. God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still weak, while we were still at our worst, while we were still his enemies, destined to face his wrath, that's when he came down. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Amen and praise the Lord. Again, I know that We're talking a whole lot more about Christ dying than we are the baby in the manger. But it's important that we realize that his birth was not just a random event in history past. His birth was the beginning of a plan that led to a cross and climaxed in an empty tomb. A plan bathed in God's grace and received through our simple faith. That Jesus' righteous life and perfect sacrificial death took the place of our sinful life and the death that we deserved along with the internal punishment. And that as he rose from the tomb on the third day, we too who believe shall rise again to be with him forever. Guys, this is our hope. This is the reason for the season. The baby's got to come out of the manger at some point and it is for a point. And the starting point is our spiritual bankruptcy. Our great spiritual need because of our great spiritual death. He came for us to save us. Not because we deserved it. Not because we were good enough. He came for us when we were at our worst. All to his, all to his praise and glory. And we could stop right there. I could end it. It would be very early. You would all be very happy with me. You wouldn't know what to do with yourselves. You'd be like, 11.24 and we're singing the last song. What do we, you want to go to Rio? What do we do? Like, we could stop there and it would be enough. It would be more than enough that Christ came just to simply die for us and reconcile us to God. And yet, 
there are some other benefits involved in his coming that make the fullness of this gift something that we talk about year after year after year after year. One of which being that in Christ we find provision for our poverty of identity. We saw already in Romans 1 how our sin has placed us in the crosshairs of God's wrath. James 4.4 4 states that anyone who is a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And Romans chapter 6 makes clear that apart from saving faith in the work of Christ, we are slaves in our sin. Enemies of God, slaves to sin, destined to face God's wrath. Once again, season's greetings from Harbor Shores. So glad that you're here today. The trees are beautiful, aren't they? Merry Christmas. And yet the moment we understand why Christ came and place our faith in what he did for us, not only does our legal standing change before him, and that is so important, right? When we realize that we are justified, that we are made right in God's sight, that is so important. And yet something else happens, guys. Something happens to our identity. Something happens to who we are at our core. No longer are we called his enemies But as John 15, 15 states, we are called his friends. Here Jesus expresses to his disciples, no longer do I call you servants because servants don't understand what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Friends of God. What? Think about where we were to where we now stand the moment we place our faith in Jesus. Friends of God? I know that there are believers in this room, myself included, that if somebody was to walk up to me on a random day in downtown Noblesville and I'm doing my grocery shopping, hey, would you say you're God's friend? I would have to really sit and think through all of my theology before giving them an answer of yes. Because on most days, do I really feel like who I am deserves friendship of God? No. And yet the promise of Christ is that those who know him are declared his friends. And we can take that a, a step further. Romans eight fifteen through 16 states, again speaking to believers, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Mm. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are What? Children of God. Friends. Whew. Children. That we are sons and daughters of the one true king. No longer standing to face the the wrath of a righteous God, but we are covered by the perfect righteousness of Christ and called sons and daughters. Friends. And Romans 8, 1 through 2 declares, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The gift of Jesus, when fully received in faith, we see very clearly here, pulls us out of our spiritual poverty, resulting in our new identity. Once enemies of God... Now his friends. 
Once slaves to sin, now sons and daughters. Once condemned by our sin and now covered by his blood. A gift we did nothing to earn or deserve. A gift free for all who grab hold of it in faith. All to the praise of his glorious grace. And again, that would be enough. Just to know that we are sons and daughters and friends, no longer standing to face condemnation, our spirits made alive and, and, and made alive in such a way that we are guaranteed that as he rose and, and as he stands in victory forever, that we will be with him again one day. That would be enough. And yet he doesn't just leave us here in pregnant pause waiting for that day. He does something else. In Christ, we find provision for our poverty of purpose. That same Jesus who died to be our Savior rose again on the third day as King. Rose again as King. And we read in Ephesians chapter 2, or I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, that, that he sat down next to God and is reigning over all. And, and, and this king has saved us with a purpose. To proclaim to the world that he is the king who is coming back to rule and reign, but also to promote to the world the ways of his kingdom through what we say and how we live. And when we think about what we consider to be our purpose on most days, I mean, really, again, we've talked about this before, but when you, when you really boil life down to what it is, I mean, making sure that you have three square, making sure that you have a, a roof over your head, making sure that there's enough money in the bank. Like, when we think about what our, what our most base purpose is on this life, and then to think about what happens the moment that we place our faith in Christ, that our life doesn't just become about this life, but the next. That the work we do isn't something that we just pass off to someone who may care about it or not care about it. That it's not just about things that we can't take with us, but instead, he meets us in this place that is absolute bankruptcy. Our everyday purposes that really don't matter to much, right? Think about what your life is all about, and if you were to leave here today and die, car accident, meteor falls on you, done. I don't know, I'm hearing in Yahoo, like every day there's like a new meteor that's like flying by the earth. Is that a thing? Has that always been there? I don't know. But anyway, if you're dying that way today, that's it. You're done. What were you living for? As you think of your your one-month plan, your one-year plan, your five-year plan, your 10-year plan, your 30-year plan. And yet, Christ comes as our Lord, as our Savior, and as our King And says, I know that you think that all of this is important. And it is, right? If you go home today and you don't have a roof, you don't have food in the fridge, you don't have money in the bank. Houston, we have a problem, right? We need to, we need to tend to these things. And scripture attests to that. But all of those things are filtered through the main thing, which is the purpose given to us by our king, who says, wait, 
Yes, I want to save you from your sin, but I also want to save you from a purposeless existence and give you purpose in your work so that it can be worship. I want to give you purpose in your schooling so that it's not just an obstacle you have to complete, but something that I am going to use and tailor for my good purposes with your life. I want to take your finances, and I know you think that that Lexus with the bow on top, that that is going to be just tops, but I promise you, I want to repurpose what you have for the good of others and the good of yourself and for my glory He meets us in a place that is all about self, that is all about this life, that is all about the temporal, that is all about the things that we see right in front of our eyes and says, wait, I want to take that and I want to make it something more. Something that has beauty and purpose, not just in this life, but in the next. Now, he didn't have to do this, folks. He could have been like those those cooks in the kitchen with kids. I, I, again, I, before I use this analogy, zero judgment for where you fall on this scale. I have seen two types of parents in cooking with kids. The one is all about the mess and the chaos, and it like it, they they deal with it, and they're like, okay, I realize this this bread may come out lopsided because you're helping me with the measurements, and you know you think yeast is flour, and this is going to get real weird, but like I, I want you in on this, okay? We're we're going to get our hands dirty, we're going to get in this together, and there's going to be a certain level of mess and chaos, and yet there's there's something more important happening here, and so I'm okay with it, and so they allow their kids to to come into the kitchen with them. They pull up a stool so that they can kneel on the stool and, and do some of the measurements themselves. And, and it, it's just this process that I look at and I say, how? How did you do that? Because I'm the other kind of cook. I'm the cook that, that threatened my kids and say, if you come into this kitchen one more time until I'm done cooking dinner making this dessert, pouring this bowl of cereal, making my morning coffee. I am going to freak out. Get out of the kitchen. I just don't like it. I don't like the chaos. I don't like the mess. And if I'm going to work so hard to put this dinner together and have it come off the way that I want it to, I want it to look the way that I want it to. And I want it to taste the way that I expect it to taste. And I want the bread to be perfectly round. And I want the cake to not come out lopsided. Is that too much to ask? (laughs) I'm the one doing all the work, right? (sighs) Now, it would make sense to us if we would look at our Heavenly Father and say, yeah, you know what? It would make sense for Him to come down in the midst of our sin, in the midst of the chaos that our sin caused, and to say, okay, I'm coming, and I'm going to grow up, And I'm going to allow you to nail me to that cross. I'm going to allow my blood to come down. I am going to allow myself to be the perfect sacrifice for all of your sin and all of the mess that it created. And I'm going to raise from the dead three days later. And I want you to believe in this. I want you to believe in this. Okay, this is is an act of my grace for you. You do not deserve this. Do any of us deserve this? No. So it would be fair to him to say to us, you do not deserve this. And yet I'm going to give this to you. And I want you to believe it. And then here's what I want you to do. I want you to go into the next room 
And I want you to sit on your hands for the rest of your life until I am done baking this perfect plan for all of mankind. Because you know what? I have a plan and a purpose. I don't know if you've heard this. I'm sovereign. And I really want to carry out this beautiful plan to completion. And so you're probably going to screw it up. Let's be honest. Church life, kind of messy, right? Living with other believers, it's kind of messy. He could have looked at us and said, you know what? I'm done with mess. I've seen what your mess does. It nailed me to a cross. And so you know what? I've come. I've fixed it. I want the bread to look perfect. Please go sit in the other room and wait for eternity. I saved you. And I promised you forever. Isn't that enough? Just get out of the way. Sometimes I think that's honestly how we view God's view of his children. God couldn't possibly want to use me. God couldn't lead me to talk to my neighbor. God couldn't infuse me with his spirit so that this, this gift pours out of me for, for the good of these people. God, God couldn't step up in such a way where he actually wants to use someone like me. I'm such a mess. I've screwed up my life. I've given up my chance to be used by him for any kind of good purpose. And so you know what? I'm just going to wait over here and not screw anything up. Because I think God has a perfect plan, and if I get in the middle of it, it's only going to get screwed up. And yet I think the beautiful thing that we find in the verses that we read today and in the heart of the gospel is a God who came to us amidst our mess. He's not psyched by it. He's not, he's not put off by it. Now, now, don't get me wrong, he hates our sin. He hates our mess, and he can't be in the presence of it. And so he will one day judge it once and for all, cast it out of his sight, and give us a place that is absent of it. God's feeling on sin is not winking parent. He is completely other from it. And yet in the midst of his children, his blood-bought, blood-redeemed, blood-covered children that he came down for in the midst of the mess and died for, he says, wait, I don't want you to go sit over there. I want to use you. I want to use you to change this world. I want to use you to tell the world about the king. I want to use you to represent the king's economy. I want you to be my hands, my feet, my mouthpiece. And you know what? That work that you do, you can actually take it with you. Other than your 401k and your fancy house and all these other things that you're living for. No, I have a plan and a purpose for you that is redeemed, that is eternal. And I want to use you to that end. How amazing is that? He didn't have to do that. Being our sacrifice was enough. Calling us sons and daughters was enough. But he wants us off of the sidelines, off of the bench and in the game. And he knows it's going to be messy. And for that, there is grace. But he would much rather have a redeemed son and daughter who is going out to promote the king and his kingdom than one who is fearful that the father is going to slap their hand if they get in the game and screw up. So for those of you who are here today, 
who know who Jesus is. This whole Romans thing, you've walked down this road. (laughs) You know it better than I do. Probably preach it better than I do. I pray that this message would renew your worship, would renew your focus, and would renew your purpose. But in order to do that, we got to get the baby out of the manger. And we have to see the reason why Jesus came, why he grew, why he died, why he rose again. And it's not so that we can be a stagnant people, but a spirit-filled, spirit-led people. Rooted and founded in Scripture and ready at the drop of a hat to be about the work of our Father. And for those of you who are here today... And this is news for you. Maybe you're watching online or you're here today and you're like, whoa, I really thought that this was just a baby thing. I really thought like we just came and we sang joy to the world and we said the word Emmanuel like 50 times and then you said Merry Christmas and we all left. Like I I didn't actually know that like this had teeth to it. Or maybe you're here and you've heard this a few times. 87. Maybe you're here and you have heard this message again and again and again and again and again, but this is the first time where you're like, whoa, this matters. This matters here and now. This didn't matter 2,000 years ago and then stop mattering until someday when we're standing before the throne. This, This matters right now. I pray that if that's you, that today would be a day where you make a decision. A decision to come and kneel before the king. And to call him both your savior, the one who died for your sins, but also your Lord. The one who is first in your life. Because the reality is, he who came as a babe in a manger is going to come back a king on a white horse. To establish his kingdom forever. And we will all kneel before him, but only those who kneel to him in this life and call him Savior and Lord, only those who give him their heart in this life will be with him in the next. And so I pray that today will be your day to make that decision. One that will change the state of your spirit. One that will, <laughs> that will give you a brand new identity. And one that will give you a refined and redeemed purpose now into forever. And so we're going to have the elders come front. I'm going to be up front. And if that's you, if you have to make that decision today, just come forward. Like seriously. This is the rest of your life and on into eternity. Who cares? All these people that are sitting here who know Jesus are praying for you to do this anyway. They're not sitting there like, oh man, they're going up front. Oh man, this is awkward. Oh, I really wish you'd end this thing. This is making us uncomfortable. They're praying for you to do it. Those of you who are online and you're listening to this, you're like, well, maybe I'll, I don't know, I'll think about it. We, we have been praying for you to do this. This is why we are here. To worship because of what he has done and to proclaim it so that those who don't know it can receive it. So come forward. These people want you to and they want to celebrate with you and they want to be a family of redeemed purpose with you. So if that's you, I'll be down front. And if you don't want to hear my voice anymore, someone else will be. Come pray with them. 
But make today the day where you come and you bow a knee to the one who came to you and died for you and rose again to be your king now and forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the beauty of your gospel. May it never be something that is commonplace. May it never be something that is drab. May it be something that is rooted in our deepest sense of who we are. In our deepest sense of why we live and what we do. God, would your gospel just penetrate our hearts. That that we may be a people who see you alive here and now. That see the work that you've called us to as something that was given by you for our good and for your glory. And God, I pray for every heart of every man, woman, and child who is in this room, who has never given their life over to you. Holy Spirit, come now. Open eyes. Do the work that only you can do. Stir their hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.